turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to continue our study of the book of Luke. I think this is our 20th week, 19th or 20th week um, that we've studied Luke. We're looking at primarily the passages that are unique to the book of Luke. And we're entering, I'm doing it out of order, uh, which is because, you know, we had Christmas and now we've got Easter and we've got things. So I'm doing it kind of in a funky little way, but hopefully it all makes sense and you can put Luke together. And as you read it more in the days ahead, uh, it'll It'll give you some wisdom about what God is up to, the, 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 the divinity and the humanity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so over these next weeks, you know, Easter is like two weeks from today. So we're kind of entering a time of study on, on the passion events, the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. And so today I want to look at the trial before Herod and Pilate. And we'll get to that in just a second. I do want to remind you that next week is Palm Sunday. And then we have a number of special events during Holy Week. We have a Monday Thursday service, which is at 630, which is a, a time of communion. And then on Friday night, if you've not been a part of our Good Friday service, it's also at 630. It's a service of shadows. Uh, it's called a tenebrae service. Uh, I, if you've been here, you know it's really, it kind of, Book ends our Christmas Eve service. Our Christmas Eve service is the coming of the light, and then this is a, a, a night of shadows on the death of Christ. So please be there, and then of course we'll celebrate uh, the resurrection on Easter as we as we do. So I hope you'll join us for for those events. All right, couple of questions for you. Look up here first. Uh, be honest. Raise your hand. I'm going to ask for a call of hands on this. And uh, so you're going to have to be a little vulnerable. Raise your hand. Are you rattled when things don't go as you expected? Um, do you often worry about things beyond your control? Do you lose sleep over pressing issues? Is it hard to turn off your mind? I thought I'd put one. Is it hard to turn on your mind after this? But um, Some of you need that on switch up. Uh, does the unknown intimidate you? And do you often imagine the worst case scenario? Moms, every one of you should raise your hand. I know. Your son, your daughter, they're, they're not just in a wreck. They're dead in the ditch. Uh, so uh, I, I know those. those. Hey, let me, let me tell you what. This sermon is for you because you have a control problem. Hallelujah. Now, I, I, I want to I, I speak about control this morning. And control is a, weird, um, is, is a weird topic in some ways. Because none of us wants to be out of control, right? I just watched the Oscars last week, right? For those of you who live in a, in a bubble... One guy slapped another guy. That's out of control, right? But at the same time, we don't want to be controlling, meaning we try to micromanage every single circumstance and every single situation around us. By the way, that's an illusion. That's a lie. You can't do it anyway, right? So you're always going to be frustrated. So somewhere in between is this 
healthy balance of a life somehow in control. And I think that Jesus in this account can give us some guidance. This is not uh, the end-all sermon on control. But I think it will help us get on a path that will help guide us, so to speak, about control. You know, I, I'm always amazed at this issue of control uh, because we as Americans have been inculcated uh, with this idea, yeah, that was my word for the day. Um, we've, we've been, we have this idea that we are in control. You know, we can do whatever we want. We're our own person. We're free. We got our lives. We direct our lives. Uh, our lives are in our control, right? We have this kind of in our mindset. But, but let me tell you, you, very little about who you are and what you are and what you've become actually was controlled by you. Every time I go on a trip overseas, when I go to Africa and visit with Nate and Cheryl and I wander the streets of Soto, Ethiopia, I am always struck by this truth. What would I have been if I had been born there? What would I have been if I had been in this family, in this country, in this nation, in this time, period. See, the greatest thing that determined who you are in the course of your life are the parents you're born to, the place you were born, and the time you were born. All three of those were out of your control. I don't know, you. I didn't get to fill out an application. I want to be born to Jimmy and Mildred Brookins. I want to be born in the late 50s. I want to be born in the United States of America. I want to be this. I, out of my control. My parents wed 68 years ago today. Today would have been their wedding anniversary. And because they met in some little South Georgia town and got married, had a family, much of who I am is determined by all of that which is out of my control. Much of who you are. Much. I can't even guess the percentages, but studies are trying to be done to determine how much of your life is out of your control. And I want to say a lot. You know, I don't know percentages. I don't know how you measure that. But just from those factors, it's obvious that we are not in control. We'll shift and look at this biblical account because I think it, again, will give us some guidance about this whole issue, this word uh, concerning control. Jesus is arrested, and he's taken before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the religious ruling council, the council of 70. They, they, they believe that they control the people, Jews, that they're speaking on behalf of God. So they have religious control over the people. Now, they find Jesus to be a heretic, um, they want to put him to death. The problem is they don't have the control to kill him, to put him to death. So they send him to the pro-council, the governmental control center. They send him to Pilate, who believes he has control over what happens. He goes before Pilate. 
he's, he, he speaks Pilate. Now, this is what's funny about this passage to me, and I'm going to just... I didn't ask her anything. Um, I'm out of control. Yeah. We're, thank you. In my Bible, the heading says, Jesus before Herod and Pilate. But here's my premise today. I believe it's Herod and Pilate before Jesus. Because I believe the one in control is not the one we think is in control. That really Christ is controlling, God is controlling this entire circumstance. And this is the premise for today. What you look at and think is in control is probably not really who's in control. That really, ultimately, we serve a God who is in control. Now, that has a lot of ramifications for us and how we walk. And I believe that that's what this passage can help us navigate a little bit today. So Jesus goes from the Sanhedrin, religious control center, to the governmental control center, Pilate, who finds no fault in him. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's what he's being accused of. The, the religious leaders are trying to prop up a political claim so that Pilate will put him to death, saying he's going around claiming he's the king of the Jews. And Jesus' basic response is, whatever you, you know, it's whatever you say. You know, he's kind of like, whatever, to, the, to, to Pilate. And then Pilate says, I, I don't really find anything that, against this guy. I don't see the proof here. And the religious leaders say, well, he's, he, ever since he started preaching in Galilee, he has been causing problems, stirring up trouble wherever he goes. Well, you know, this is such a, it's such a lie. They're the ones who made trouble. They're the ones who kept stirring things up. Jesus was teaching and preaching. But Pilate says, wait a minute, he's from Galilee? Herod's in town. Herod is the one who's in charge of Galilee. I'm just in this area. Now, the political stuff here is pretty complicated, and I don't want to spend the next half hour, though I love this stuff, teaching what's going on. But you've got the Sanhedrin who kind of are still in control of the Jewish law and what's going on. You have Pilate, who's an appointed governor from the Roman Empire to oversee and keep the peace. And then you have Herod... Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, who has been given control of Galilee and a couple of regions. Now, here's what's confusing. There are at least three different Herods mentioned in the Bible, in the New Testament. You had Herod the Great, who was the Herod that was at Jesus' birth. This is his son. And he, Herod the Great died like in 4 AD or something. Then his son, this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, or Antipas. I told you I'm going to go on and on, and yet here I am. Um, Herod Antipas is the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. And so he's already known to us. And then in the book of Acts, you'll have another Herod, who is this Herod's nephew. You, you, you with me? So the Herod mentioned in Acts is a whole different Herod altogether. So you got all these Herods going on. But in any case... Pilate, hopefully that didn't confuse you, but gave you some understanding. Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod has heard about Jesus, 
And Herod, he works miracles. He's a great teacher. Herod is such a loser. I mean, really, he is such a bad guy that all he does is he marches Jesus out. He wants to see him do a show. He wants the dog and pony show. He wants some miracles. Let me see something. So he plies him with questions, trying to get him to say something, trying to get him to say something brilliant or do some great miracle, and Jesus stays absolutely silent before him. As a result, he is mocked, and he is put in a robe, and Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate, then, is like, I still find no fault with this guy. I, I, Herod didn't find anything wrong with him. So it says in Luke, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, meaning the Jewish leaders who have brought Herod. And they keep yelling, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, so the first time is before, second time right when he gets back, now a third time he's speaking to them. He says, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Now, there's so much I want to say about this passage. It is so... I, I, I am not anti-democracy, but if you ever want to see democracy in not good action, here it is. The crowd prevails. The crowd is not always right. And there's something in us that also wells up and says, this is so unjust. This is, this is the greatest crime really ever committed convicting a totally innocent man of death. And yet, and yet, from our human perspective, when we view it like that, we lose sight of this truth. God is in control. This entire thing has been orchestrated, not by the religious leaders, not by the political leaders, but by God himself. So when you ask the question, who crucified Jesus? God did, because he was the one in control. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, because ultimately he is the one in control. Now, we've got a lot of players going on here and pawns happening, but what I want to focus on for this remaining time is this whole truth, ideas about control and I'm going to ask you to put aside some preconceived ideas about control, like control is a bad word, and see kind of this idea about who's in charge. You with me? So let's see if we can wander through this together, and it'll make some sense, and it'll be a blessing, and we'll help all of us live our lives in freedom versus that list of questions that I started off with. Um, the first point is this. Control is about power. Control is about power. Now, when we think about this, we think about, okay, I want power so I can be in control. But in this passage, what I think it's saying is this, that the one in control is wielding the power. 
rather than the reverse. Like, I'm going to get power so I can control things. I want people doing what I tell them to do. I want, I want this to occur. I want... Good luck with that, by the way. Good luck. Because you're not going to find anybody. Even if they're doing what you command them to do, they're not really doing it. Remove the restrictions, and they'll do their own thing. Here's the passage. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. This is back at the beginning of Luke chapter 23. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Here Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And basically he's not saying, yes, I am. But it's like, the the way it's worded is more like, you're the one calling this. It's whatever you say. Now, what I want you to see in this passage is that our idea is that Pilate is in control. But really... I believe Jesus is the one directing this entire thing. He knows where he's headed. He's already been praying this. And, and, and he, knows what is, he knows what is occurring. Romans says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still, what? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The idea that I'm trying to get across, and I I don't know if I'm doing it well or not, but trying to communicate is this. All humans stand powerless before an eternal God. And at just the right time, God died for us. His power is demonstrated by his control to go to the cross, to stand before Pilate, to go before Herod, and do what is unimaginable. In 1997, Apple Computers, which is now one of the two or three biggest corporations on the planet, stood at a point of bankruptcy. Things in the early computing days were not going well. Apple had created their own little computer and their own um, design. And the two companies at this point in the 90s who were seen as competitors, the two men who were seen at Juggernauts were Steve Jobs at Apple and Bill Gates at Microsoft. Now, Microsoft were, controlled the uh, inner workings, the, the language of computers. They didn't actually sell any computers at this point. IBM had sold computers, but they were kind of like, it was like dinosaurs by this point. Um, desktops weren't identified with IBM because they, got, they let them be sold. Anyway, Apple and Steve Jobs stood at this point of bankruptcy, whether they were going to make it or not. And at that point, $150 million came from the most unlikely source on the planet, Bill Gates. Bill Gates loaned Apple $150 million 
Now, in today's money, you're like, 150 million, that's 97. This is 1997. It was a lot of money to come from Bill Gates. And, and people were like stunned. They're like, how would, these guys were seen as mortal enemies. Why would he loan him this money? And Steve Jobs had this pretty interesting saying. He said, we have created this false narrative that for Microsoft to win, Apple has to lose. When in fact, there's room for all. And as, as long as we're trying to kill each other, we're, we're both going to die. There's this idea about control and power. Who's going to be the most powerful? That $150 million changed the course of Apple, according to most people. Apple went on to become what Apple became. Controllers of the entire universe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Apple, Apple does what Apple does. But we, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to get to the place where we say we are not the ones in power. We serve a God who is in power. Listen, I, honestly, this will give you so, I'm, this is the second point coming up. It'll give you so much peace to realize you're not in control. To actually realize that Putin is not in control. To realize our government, our president, our vice president, our Congress, they have a certain arena, a sphere of influence, but ultimately the one in ultimate power is the one who's in control. Listen, this is why when there are people who deny the existence of God, they have to rely on a lesser power, something exterior, external to depend on. They have to see, and their battles become against flesh and blood, right? Rather than God. Not that our battle is him, but we understand he is the one who wars. We sang it, the battle belongs to the Lord. Not to you and me. Because control is about power, and the power resides in the throne room of heaven. And as a result, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. What, what is the demonstration of that power, by the way? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say and talk about that incomparably great power is like the power he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. No cross, no resurrection, no demonstration of power, no power for those of us who believe. It goes back to where Jesus is talking to Herod and Pilate. If we don't have this and him going to the cross, we don't have this incomparably great power available to those of us who believe. God is in control. Second point is this. I didn't really know how to word this, so I said it like this. Peace brings control. Or I could have said ultimate control, relinquishing our life to God, brings peace. But there's an element of peace engaged in the whole idea of control. 
Go back to this passage. Let me see if I can clear this up. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. Let's see the dog and pony show. Heal somebody. Make a blind man see or a lame man walk or do something. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. I mean, they're just like, this guy's nothing. He's not saying anything. Interesting verse. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Because before this, they had been enemies. It's an incredible passage, really, that Jesus stands there. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd stood there and they're mocking me and they're yelling at me, and I'd have probably slapped somebody. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know that I have the inner peace to exhibit control because it's about me. It's about what's going on around me. I want to defend myself. I, want to, I don't want these people to make fun. I don't want them to make fun of God. I don't want them to make fun of stuff. So instead, I would have lost control because I don't have the inner peace to maintain that measure of control. But I believe that when we receive the peace that passes understanding, that we can be in control. All anger, all lashing out, all defensiveness is in some way because of a lack of peace within us. There's something that's destroyed our peace. And as a result, we want to grab control in any way that we can. Goes on and says that Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him, neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Somehow. The peace of God that's on Jesus allows Pilate, I think, to see. This guy's done nothing to deserve to die. Pilate and Herod both, they lack peace. You don't know it, but they lack peace. There is a, there's an element that resides in peace, that should in a healthy way help us just say, get over it. I mean, I, I think so much, of, so, there's so many times in counseling, I don't do this, but I want to look to the person and say, get over it. You know, it just seems so simple. Stop it. You got a problem with that? Just stop it. Stop doing it. Get over it. But you know why we can't? Because we don't allow the power of God to permeate every part of the hurt and wounding of our life and to heal us as only God can. And as a result, and so many times we need other people to help us work through this. 
Obviously, there might be better people equipped to do this than me. So if you want to go to counseling to somewhere else than me, feel free. Because you might get a get over it thing. You won't, but I'm better than that. But at the same time, to understand that <clears throat> this realization that God is in control, it's, it's monumental. And it, 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 it's questioned. If he's a good God and he's in control, then why are all these bad things happening, right? But there's, God is, God's ways are beyond mine. His plans are beyond mine. And ultimately, I have to rest on the truth that God is a good God. God has a plan for my life. He has a plan to prosper me. And I have to receive that. And when I do, I can walk in a measure of peace that I'm not walking in at the moment. My daily life is a, is a forward, as Eugene Peterson said, a long obedience in the same direction. It's step by step trying to walk out the peace and control of God in my life. Because I can lose my peace like that. Now, honestly, I think I'm better now than I was in my 20s. So I was always too skinny to ever slap anyone. But my tongue was like a fire. Um, I have at least by now come to some self-control that I don't say everything I think. Praise God. Because first of all, I think everything's funny. And I think people are funny and I, I think they should see how funny they are. Most people don't appreciate that. They don't enjoy that. Somebody else showing them how funny they are. Or if I get mad, just saying, you know, something I shouldn't say. All of us have our own methods of doing this. But ultimately, when we receive the peace of God, I believe it brings control in our lives. It's, it helps us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The control it takes to not open your mouth is way beyond what many of us have ever accomplished. Because we wanted we want it to happen. Listen, I saw a couple, just a couple of illustrations real fast. One, I, I read an article uh, like a couple of weeks ago. I'm always reading articles, but I read a couple articles this week. One was about the tattoo convention that was recently held in Houston. Anybody go there? Yeah. Anybody <laughs> attend the tattoo convention? And they were interviewing this tattoo artist, this woman, and they asked her in the article, what is the most common tattoo you do right now? And she said, oh, honestly, that's easy. The most common tattoo I do right now is the cover-up of another tattoo. That's where I spend, I get more money covering up previous tattoos. Now, to me, what this says is, you know, at some point in my life, I thought that Mary was going to be the woman for me, right? So I got her name tattooed on my arm, and now Mary is long gone, and so now I've got to write Merry Christmas or something, I don't know. I got to do something to cover up the Mary on my heart. 
I know they're not spelled the same. Don't, don't send me your email. But if you're getting a tattoo, you probably don't know that. So, ah, just, I told you, I think everything's funny. Too much, too much of what we're trying to do about grabbing peace is about grabbing control. And then we realize our life is out of control and we have stamped it on ourselves forever. Let's talk about hoarding. Why do we hoard stuff? Well, hoarding to me is this fear that if I, I may not have it in the future. And therefore, I got to keep it now in case I may ever need this widget 100 years from now. And then I'll need the widget. I won't have it. And so my house is stacked to the ceiling with widgets because I'm afraid. I don't have, I don't have peace. By the way, for those of you who are hoarders, I just want to defend you. <clears throat> I want to help you and defend you. How much time? We're doing good. Last week, um, this past week, the mastermind, you may not have known this, 3.4 million liters of this product were stolen in 2012. I, I, I don't know what 3.4 million liters is. It's a lot. <clears throat> he was slapped with a $7.3 million fine. What was stolen? Maple syrup. Yeah. Did you know that the great Canadian maple syrup heist, as it's known, that there is a stockpile of almost 10,000 barrels of maple syrup in Canada in case they have a bad year of harvest so that they can release the maple syrup. And this guy stole a lot, and now he was, had gone to trial, and he was fined about it. So you start looking up things that we stockpile. Just... In case you wondered, Joe Biden, just over the last couple of weeks, President Biden just released a lot of oil that we've been stockpiling because of the whole oil thing. We, we stockpile oil. In the early days of the pandemic, governors requested supplies from the strategic national stockpile, which contains items like drugs, vaccines, and surgical masks. There are other stockpiles you may not have been aware of. In the U.S., we store a helium stockpile 3,000 feet beneath Amarillo, Texas. So if you need helium, you know where to go. Go to Amarillo. China built up a pork reserve in 2007. Norway constructed a seed vault inside the Arctic Circle with more than a million samples to replenish the earth in the event of an apocalypse. We have these in so many storehouses, so many stockpiles everywhere. So my takeaway is when somebody accuses you of hoarding, just tell them you're not hoarding, you're stockpiling. <laughs> I'm just, you know, this is a national stockpile right here. Why, why is it a problem, though, when we hoard? Because it, it indicates a lack of peace. It indicates fear. The fear. The currency of control is fear, and the devil is the banker. He is dealing out this fear, which makes you fearful. You lose your peace, and now you try to seize control more for yourself. 
That's why I term this peace will actually bring a greater measure of control in your life than you ever experienced. Third point and final one today is that this. Control has to be engaged personally. It has to be received for yourself. Here's what happens. But with loud voices, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Who's the one? The murderer? Barabbas. You know the story well. Give us Barabbas. The, the gospel truth is seen in the story of Barabbas. In this, Jesus, who shouldn't have died, died. The one who should have died, Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, is set free. Now, we have no evidence that Barabbas ever received who Jesus is, but it is the truth that should prevail upon every one of us, that Jesus died in our place. We should have been the one, like Barabbas, who was killed. But instead, we get to experience the freedom of the Lord. But for it to happen, it has to be received personally. This, this control, this power that we receive as followers of Jesus Christ has to be received by him personally. By us personally. Pilate wanted to simply keep the peace. He didn't want problems. His role as governor was this. Just make sure these Jews don't get out of hand. Keep the peace. Whatever it takes. So as a result, he sent an innocent. He stood. Pilate stood before Jesus. And had the opportunity to receive who Jesus was. But he was so concerned about his image, so concerned about what was going on governmentally, so concerned about his position that he allowed people to persuade him to send Jesus to death. Though he saw it for himself, this man has done nothing. Years later, Pilate is removed from power because he can't control the Jews. Again, control is an illusion. Because he can't control them. This According to tradition, this issue with Jesus always haunts him. He, he flees from Palestine. He even flees from Rome. According to tradition, he goes to north of Italy to what is now Switzerland and eventually takes his own life. And if you want to go to the place, there's a mountain called Mount Pilatus in Switzerland where you can take a cable car. That's what his life resulted in, a cable car to the top of a mountain that bears his name. Herod, within just a couple of years, is going to be accused by his nephew of inciting a rebellion. He's removed from power. Herodias, the one who had John the Baptist, is going to go with him. And they are exiled to Spain where, according to tradition, the emperor uh, had him killed. The people who stood before who Christ stood before and they stood before him, they rejected him. And I believe their rejection is symbolic of all rejection of him. A rejection that leads ultimately to spiritual death. 
death in our lives rather than life in our lives. And for us to walk in the power of who Jesus is, we have to receive him personally. Because like Barabbas, surely he took up our affirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for, you can even say it, my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Because we are all like sheep. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we come to this table, which we're going to do in just a moment, we're coming for the recognition that our iniquity was laid on him. We're coming with the realization that his body was broken because we were broken. And now we who were many are, were broken. We can, we can make, be made powerful. We can be made united in him. We recognize that this blood, this cup is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Here is truth. Jesus died for you and me. And for us to walk in the control and the peace and the power, the presence of God, we have to receive him personally for ourselves. So when we come to this table, this is not just some religious thing we go through. Oh, you know, communion, we do that every month. No, this is, we, the Lord is meeting us here personally. The Lord is meeting us here corporately. The Lord is guiding and directing our lives. If you're here today and you need, you need him, receive him personally. If you need health, receive what God has for you. If you need direction, receive what he has for you. If you need peace, and you want to say no to the fear monger, the devil, receive the Lord. In John's gospel, this account goes like this. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, it was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What, what is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus came to testify to the truth. There is a greater kingdom than the one that we experience on a mortal level. And he is the king of this kingdom. Pilate stood there and because he couldn't receive the truth, personally, he said, what is truth? 
Today, when we come to this table, we are remembering the Lord's death until he returns. We are declaring the truth that Jesus is God who died for us so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could walk in the power of life and godliness and wholeness and share this truth with the world around us. Lord, we thank you this morning for who you are and what you have done in our lives. Lord, as we come to this table right now, we, we declare that we recognize you as the king you are. I pray that the eyes of our heart would be open, that we could know the hope to which we have been called, our glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable great power for those of us who believe. Oh, Lord, may we see our hope, our inheritance, and our power today. May we walk in them as we come to this table. As we take this bread, may it permeate us to our, every cell in our body, just as we want you to be in control of our lives, so that the peace and power and purpose of God could reign. When we receive this cup, may it be a reminder that we are a forgiven people, that the devil has no accusations against us because we have been forgiven. And may we walk in the wholeness of life. Thank you, Lord. I want to invite you to the table of the Lord. The middle sections will come down the middle section, outside section down the outside aisle. Get the elements. Um, we have bread broken. If you feel more comfortable, you can get um, the individual cup that's, that's not been opened. So there are different ways to receive. Receive it. Take it back to your place, and then we're going to take the bread and the cup together as the body of Christ. And this is really our ministry time as well, because I think everything we want is here in the presence of the table of the Lord. So just receive from him. Come to the table of the Lord. Thank you.